Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. My name is Steve Krauss. Today, I have Brent Yorgi on the podcast. Uh, Brent is a professor of math and computer science at Hendricks College. He studies functional programming, mostly in Haskell, type systems, and category theory, and more. He's the creator of the Diagrams Vector Graphics Haskell Library, and uh, he taught Introduction to Haskell and the Art of Recursion at the University of Pennsylvania, which are both classes I took and are two of the best classes I've ever taken in my life. Uh, Brent is beloved by his students. Uh, he, he really inspires kind of a cult following among those who have taken his classes and also those who uh, read his blogs or, or check him out on, on the internet. I find that he really just, just really cares about the student experience and the way students approach new and, and like difficult, but also beautiful mathematical, functional programming, discrete mathy ideas. And he really cares about making that experience pleasurable. And, and so he, he thinks about how to structure and scaffold um, those concepts. And, and I think he does an amazing job. So um, if you have a chance, I'd recommend take, taking a look at the, the, um, the content that he's produced on, on his blogs uh, and elsewhere, and and the the slides for his courses, I'd highly recommend taking a look at those if you're interested in learning more about functional programming, discrete math, programming languages. He's a, he's a master teacher. Um, and in this conversation, we talk about uh, his famous monad tutorial fallacy essay, type systems, functional reactive programming a bit, uh, the distinction between essential uh, versus accidental complexity in Haskell. And uh, at the end, we talked about the perils of reading academic computer science papers and ways to, to overcome those difficulties. And there was one uh, question that I wanted to ask Brent, but I, but I forgot to ask him towards the end of the podcast. So um, I remembered and shot him an email later, and, um, and he responded in text. And so if you stay tuned to the end of this episode, um, you'll hear um, a bonus question that I asked about incidental versus... Uh, essential complexity, and I, I read my question, and, and I also read his answer. Um, so without any further ado, I bring you Brent Yorkey. Hi, Brent. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, coming on. Uh, one of my, my favorite articles you've written, and I imagine it's one of your more popular ones, is the monad tutorial fallacy. Okay, right. Maybe you could summarize it a bit for people who haven't read so, it. So, right. Um, you know, so in, in Haskell, there's these things called monads, which is a particular abstraction. And um, there was, this was probably, I don't know, probably like 10 years ago, I wrote that article or something, but it still is the case. There's all these tutorials about monads and lots of people start learning Haskell and they want to know what monads are. And, you know, you, you have to build up a, a store of examples really to be able to get there. And so people try to kind of learn about what they are and get some kind of like look at the abstraction before they really have the, the need for it. And um, <clears throat> it doesn't work. And so the article is just about how, you know, as humans, really the way that we learn things is we see lots of, we see concrete examples and then we are able to sort of abstract out some patterns, like see patterns, make connections and start to see sort of bigger ideas but you can't start with the big ideas because if you have nothing concrete to ground them in. Um, maybe there are a few people who can do that, but I'm not one of them. And most students that I've encountered are not. And so um, so I strive to do that in my teaching, right? That 
if I'm going to teach about, um, you know, some concept, I try to build up examples of it first or sort of build up examples of why we want this. Even in cases where I kind of introduce the abstraction up front, I quickly follow that up with, okay, that probably made no sense. So let's look at a lot of examples and then we'll come back and, you know, restate the abstraction and then see how it, how it fits. Um, so, yeah, and I guess that was the article where I, I, I made this uh, just kind of a passing joke about, you know, that someone someone said, oh, I, I understand monads now. They're like burritos. And it was just totally a joke. <laughs> lots of people quote it now. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that everyone realizes that it's, it's a joke. I think some people <laughs> think really monads are supposed to be like burritos, but I don't know. I, I think I read somewhere else on the internet uh, that, someone, that someone was – partly joking yeah, trying this was, to make a case. Mark Jason Dominus uh, wrote it on his blog, this article where he's like, actually, monads are burritos. And he, sort of, <laughs> he, was, he was joking, but I think, uh, I'm not sure everyone quite understands. Anyway, so yeah, he, he and I have actually eaten burritos together. So, so that's, mm, you know. That makes sense. <laughs> so I think that... Um, like the the, the the monads are like burritos line, I, I think kind of gets at why it's such a tempting fallacy. Right. Because yeah, like once you get something, the way it's stored in your brain is is you, you store the analogy. Like uh but that's right. But you can't you can't transfer the analogy yeah. to someone else's brain without the lower level details. Exactly. Well and and part of the reason it's a fallacy is that it, it plays into this thing called uh, the curse of knowledge, which is this um, you know, well-attested phenomenon, psychological phenomenon, where it's very difficult for you to remember what it's like to not know the things that you currently know. And so, and, and you sort of assume that people will understand what you're trying to tell them um, because it makes perfect sense to you, but it's very hard. And this is part of, I think, a big part of what being a good teacher is about is training yourself to, uh, you know, be able to get into that mindset of like, what was it like when I didn't know this? What do I need to convey in order to help someone build up to the point where they, they understand? Um, and so, right, once you understand some idea like monads, you sort of forget all the, the difficulty that you had, all the details that you needed to get there. And it's very tempting to just say, look, here's how I understand it. And you just like lay out your, your high level idea. And that's not enough for people to, to really get it. Um, so yeah, so that that is yeah, that's what I said is I called the monad tutorial fallacy, but it, obviously it applies to lots of things, not just monad tutorials. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so on the the subject of making uh, of of taking the perspective of trying to understand yeah. how hard things are uh, for beginners, I I saw you have a, a new project on making type errors more understandable. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'd call it a project that, uh, that makes oh. it sound, that makes it sound, uh, you know, all official <laughs> and stuff. It's really just sort of, uh, some idle speculation at this point. I, I hope it goes somewhere, but, um, yeah. So this is something I've been thinking about in the context of, um, I've been developing this language called disco, um, which is intended to be sort of a, uh, a, a functional teaching language that you would use in the context of a discrete math course. Um, and I, I could talk more about that if you want later, but, um, you know, since I'm designing this language from scratch, I have the opportunity to, you know, rethink, like, I don't have to do things exactly the same as other languages do just because that's the way it's always been done. 
um, get to rethink some things. And so one of the things I've been rethinking is, you know, there's this such a tradition of if you have some compiler or type checker, right, when it gives you errors, you basically get a big list of, you know, a big a bunch of text uh, that says here are all the errors. Um, and, you know, type errors are notoriously scary, especially for beginners. Um, and I think, you know, part of the problem is that they're, they're so static. Um, and it's either you're going to have too much information if, if it's just a beginner. Maybe they don't need to see all the information. They just want something simple that kind of tells them, you know, at, at least the, the, the beginning of an idea of what the problem is. Um, and if even if you're an advanced user, I mean, how do you how do you know which information you should include in the error? Um, maybe there's some information you want to see and others other you don't. And um, so, so I've been thinking about okay, how how do we how do we go about building sort of uh, interactive error explanations? Um, so it might it might display say okay, there is a problem here. And the, basically the problem is that, you know, bool is not the same as int. And you would say, well, okay, obviously bool is not the same as int, but why did you think this should be an int? And then you could maybe like expand something, you know, um, and there's different ways you could imagine the interaction happening, but um, essentially you get to sort of interact with, with it and, and ask for the, the information that you want and you can kind of drill down um, and maybe even have it be dynamically generated um, as, you're, as you're exploring it. Um, and, um, so at this point, I mean, that's kind of a vague idea and I, I've, um, I've been, I've been thinking more about just how do you go about generating, uh, interactive explanations in the first place, not, and, and not so much in terms of what's the UI actually look like to interact with this, but, um, and so, you know, it gets into, it gets into some type theory and, and stuff, but um, I think I have some interesting ideas for how to, like a, a sort of a, uh, a principled way to approach uh, designing and generating these kinds of interactive explanations. But um, yeah, I, I, there was one phrase in particular that I found fascinating. You called it an untyping derivation. Yes, right. Yeah, so that's the idea. Is that um, so? Uh, you know, in, in if you're thinking about uh, type systems, sort of a, on a formal level, uh, a typing derivation really is a a proof. It's some explicit evidence that proves that a certain term has a certain type. Um, and you can kind of you could think of it as kind of a tree that you could explore that would kind of tell you all the you know all the reasoning that went into showing that this term has this type. And if a term can't be given a type, uh, if there's some kind of type error, then I think what you really want is you actually want a proof. You want explicit evidence that says, why does it not have a type? And you can think about designing a sort of an, an untyping system, an untyping derivation that is sort of the, the type of of these trees that would constitute uh, a proof that a term didn't have a given type, and then you could you could use those trees as the basis for um, you know you could interactively explore them, uh, and, and that could kind of be used as the basis for 
exploring these these errors. But um, you know, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of room. It's there's a lot of room for uh, designing different kinds of untyping derivations. But um, it at least gives you sort of a theoretical framework for being able to say, you know, this is a good untyping derivation or this isn't because it has to relate to typing derivations in a certain way. And you can even formally prove that, you know, that it has the properties that you want. Hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the things like an example of like the, a problem that would make type errors like difficult to make better uh, that I think you kind of, I think hinted at it in your paper um, is so like if, if I'm the way I conceptualize it is if I'm a programmer ha hacking away at my Haskell code mm -hmm. and I get, and I'm, you know, in a, a specific part of the code and I compile and there's a type error, right. oftentimes what makes the type error so confusing is that the, the error is the, the compiler complains about something that's like not ne near where I'm editing. Mm -hmm. It's like complaining about, right. Or like another way to, to phrase it is that like, it kind of has it backwards, like I, the, the backwards uh, from the perspective of the way that I'm thinking about the problem. So like, right, right, I, right. I, I want something to be like an int, uh, but like elsewhere, um, I like, I, um, another, some, another function expects a bool, but. Um, right, no, I think I understand what you're saying, right? That, um, you know, at some point there's a, there's a mismatch, but uh, you know, which side is to blame? Yes, exactly. Is exactly. It, that it really is an int, but you want it to be a bool, and that's what's wrong. Or no, it really should be a bool, and something else made it an int, and that's what's wrong. Yes, exactly. Um, it's just a, like because a yeah. type error is just an inconsistency. Yeah. So from the perspective of the programmer, it's um, not inconsistent. It's like something's wrong. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think I think this is something that that um, like interactive error explanations could really help with. Uh, maybe I, I, I conjecture <laughs> because. Um, you know, if, it, if it's just a static message, well, then th that message has to make a lot of choices and assumptions about, you know, what's wrong. And it might just, it might get it wrong. It might, that might not be, that might not be the problem. Um, but if you can explore it interactively, you know, it's just like these things don't match. Now you get to explore why. And, and now you get to, you have a choice and you says, okay, this thing was a bool. This is an int. And you're like, well, yes, this thing should be an int. Therefore the problem must be over here. And you start exploring on that side. Or if it was the other way around, then you start exploring the other way. But, um, you know, you, you actually get to, you get to bring your intentions uh, into it and then use your intentions to help guide which parts of the area you explore to drill down to the, the thing that actually is wrong. It's making me wonder if there'd be like a way for you to somehow give the compiler the extra information that, like the user just before compiling, the user was like uh, the user's cursor was over here, and then the compiler could be like, oh, like potentially that means they're looking at the problem in this direction. So, uh, mm. or maybe that's that's yeah. too, expecting too much. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know. Intuitively, to me, it, it seems like you wouldn't that would that would do the wrong thing most of the time. time, and it would. I mean, because yeah. you know, just because you you've just been editing something that doesn't necessarily mean that the error is just in the part that you just wrote, right? It could yeah. be that there was an error in something else you wrote, but maybe, you know, especially if type inference is involved, it could be that it was inferring some type for something, but just not the one you thought or the one you wanted. And now the error is showing up here because 
it's finally you know manifesting here. But I don't yeah. know. I'm, yeah. Okay. Um, no, no, of course. You could maybe imagine trying to apply some machine learning to it. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, uh, we could gather a bunch of data about how people explore these things and what they were doing beforehand, and then maybe we could, um, you know, make better guesses. But yeah. I, I don't, you know, ultimately, I think anything that tries to be too magic is just going to end up being wrong a bunch of the time, and it's just going to be frustrating. Yeah. So the, the the goal here is to kind of give the programmer control. Um, so that they can, they know exactly what's going on, and they can they can guide the process using their what they know their intentions to be. Mm -hmm. So you came across uh, these ideas while developing this disco language. Uh, right. so I'd be curious, yeah, to hear more about the motivation for. Sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. Um, and it's it's very much at a, at a prototype stage now. Um, you know, I I may end up using it in a in teaching a discrete math course like in a couple of years but um sort of the 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 motivation is um you know functional programming is is great and we want students to be exposed to it um but sort of where do you put it in the curriculum um right now at hendrix i teach a, a functional programming course but it's it's an upper level elective course it's mostly juniors and seniors taking it um which there's nothing wrong with that, but um, you know, it would be great if students could be exposed to functional programming ide programming ideas much earlier, and then they could use those ideas and sort of use them as a lens to to look at um, all the other stuff that they're learning in the curriculum. Um, and I think it would you know have more of an impact on the way that they think about things. Um, but then the problem is okay. Well, so do you do you introduce uh, um, another, you know, beginning functional programming course that you put early in their curriculum. Well, we can't add another course because we just don't have anyone to staff it and we can't add more courses to our major. Do you make your introductory programming course about functional programming? Um, at a small school like this, we can't do that either because we only have one introductory programming course and it's really serving a bunch of different populations, not just potential computer science majors, but also you know, like physics and chemistry students who who need to who want to know some programming to they can so they can apply it to their field, or just like you know creative writing majors who just think programming sounds interesting, um, and uh, you know introducing functional programming in an introductory course would make sense if it was all potential computer science majors, but like especially for those sci other science majors, um, you want them to learn something that they can go back and. You know, directly apply, and and the fact is that not many people are using Haskell in uh, you know doing physics simulations, and so I mean maybe they should, but um, it seems more more useful to teach them like you know Python or something like that, which is what we actually use uh, in our intro course. But so the idea is, and and we're not I'm not the first to have this idea, but um, it actually goes really well in a discrete math course. So typically, discrete math would be required for a computer science major. Um, and functional programming fits that really well. Um, the, the topics just um, go together really well. And so, and other people have done this, have, have, in, have used uh, you know, functional programming in a discrete math course, but typically they use some existing general purpose functional programming language, uh, like Haskell or OCaml or something like that. And the problem is, you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of time 
Um, it's not a whole course where you're going to go into the details of Haskell. Some of the, you know, these students haven't done a lot of programming before. Um, and uh, you don't want to spend a lot of time kind of having to carefully scaffold things and tiptoe around the features of the language that you don't want them to learn about or you don't want them to get confused by or whatever. And just sometimes there's impotence mismatches with the kinds of things you want to do in a discrete math course. So, um, so and to me, it seemed like a fun opportunity to design a language specifically that would be you know, designed for teaching. It would be designed so that um, you could do discrete math stuff in it very easily um, and kind of give it a platform where you could teach the basics of functional programming and give students a fun playground to kind of learn about the discrete math concepts that, that you're teaching them. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the language. Um, you know, I guess I, I could talk more about some of the specifics of it if you want, but that's sort of where I'm coming from, what I'm trying to accomplish. With yeah, it. that makes sense. Uh, I, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about some of the like exciting features that make it different from Haskell or other languages. Sure. Um, <clears throat> some things are just, are just syntactic, um, where, uh, I've tried to make the syntax as close as possible to standard mathematical practice, as opposed to necessarily making it similar to other existing functional languages. And partly that's so that students have less of a, um, you know, cognitive dissonance going back and forth between their, you know, math textbook and the programming language. Partly, honestly, it's also to make it more attractive to math faculty who might want to pick it up and learn it in order to use it in a discrete math class. Um, so actually at Hendricks right now, our, our, um, the discrete math course is required for the computer science major, but it's actually taught by math faculty. Um, and so if, if I wanted to do this long term, I'd have to get some buy-in from them. Although it, it looks like I may have an opportunity to teach it myself uh, in a few years, possibly. But um, so some of it is just syntactic. So for example, um, you can multiply things by putting them next to each other um, in many situations. And it and sort of syntactically distinguishes between multiplication and function application just depending on, like if the thing on the left-hand side is a variable, then that's function application. But if it's like a numeric constant or something in parentheses, then it treats it as multiplication. Um, uh, you know, that's that's kind of a silly thing, but it, but it makes a difference. And students, you know, I've seen students do this a lot. Like when they're learning Python, they try to put things next to each other to multiply them. And it's like, they get some really weird error. Um, um, other things like, um, uh, I guess it's only a syntactic thing I can think of off the top of my head, but other more foundational things like um, there's no floating point numbers because we don't need those for discrete math and they just make thing, everything more complicated. So there's only, uh, there's natural numbers and integers and rational numbers um, in terms of num numeric values. And actually there's also like a, like uh, like numbers mod, you know, whatever, like the number, you know, integers mod seven, that's built in as well. Um, and, uh, and there's both, and there's also, you know, there's subtyping. So like if you have a natural number, but a function wants an integer, you can just pass it. You don't need a conversion function, um, which makes the type system more complicated, but I think otherwise, um, 
you know, just in, in mathematics, no one thinks in terms of, oh, I have a natural number. I need to convert it <laughs> to an integer. It just is yeah. an integer, right? Um, um, other things, so there's going to be, and this part is not really implemented yet, but I think I have a pretty good idea of how, how it's going to work. In addition to having lists built in, there's going to be, um, you know, sets um, and multi-sets um, and maybe even, and, and like binary trees. And basically, um, you know, how do you, if you have a, say a set or a multi-set or something, and you want to do something with it, like, you know, add up all the elements, how do you do that? And uh, I think what, what, what's going to, what's going to happen, there's basically like a, like a fold operator. Um, you give it a, some binary function and you say, fold this set using this binary function, but it has to check that the function is sort of has the right properties to do that. So for example, with, um, if you have a set, you the function had better be commutative because you don't want to be able to observe the, the specific order in which the elements are actually stored. Right? You should get the same answer no matter what order they're in because a set doesn't have an inherent order. Um, so then how do you check that a function is commutative? Basically, um, you can't, you know, it's not really decidable just to look at the code of it and, and, and check. Um, but basically, you can put a little annotation that says this function is commutative, and then it'll basically quick check it, right? It'll it'll try a bunch of random inputs and make sure that it's that it works, right? Um, and probably there's going to be a lot of built-in functions in the standard library that it's it's going to know. Oh, plus is commutative, so um, that's just kind of built in. It knows that, um, and that's just one example of a, a kind of property you could specify on a function that it'll check for you. Like you can say, oh, this function is the inverse of this other one, or you can say this is idempotent or associative. Oh, wow. um, that's cool. So all that's going to kind of be built in. Not exactly. Well, no, it is, I guess it is built into the type system. So, um, so like idempotent or associative will be a type, yeah. or like it, you said, it's more like an annotation. It's, it's more like a it's it's like a constraint. I think it's kind of like a type class in Haskell, except that there's not really a, any methods associated with it. It's just kind of like a there's like a proof hmm. associated with it. So yeah, the, the, the interesting design challenge that I'm going to have to, I'm going to really tackle this summer, um, you know, the language. So I think the things that I've mentioned so far, it's got these constraints, it's got subtyping and it has to have polymorphism or else it's going to be really stupid to teach functional programming and say, well, we have to write a separate map for every kind of list you would want to map. Over. <laughs> That's stupid. Um, but it turns out the combination of those three things is, is really non-trivial. Um, and I've been, I think it's sort of because of uh, I think I think it's sort of just on this side of of tractable um, because of some simplifying assumptions that that I make about um, you know how the subtyping works or what 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 things are decidable etc. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so it's it's really been fun kind of diving into um, you know some pretty complicated. Uh, type system stuff and, and figuring out how to implement some complicated algorithms to do the type checking. Um, but ideally in a way that, that will sort of be, that will make the language feel natural to students. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, it's also partly an experiment to see how well that works because you always worry that the more complicated you make something, even if you're doing it in order to, kind of make some nice looking API that, that the abstraction is going to leak. 
Um, and students are going to suddenly see all this scary type stuff and they're like, what is going on? Um, so that'll be the challenge is, is can we make all this, all these features work together, like work really hard under the hood to make it all work seamlessly so that students don't necessarily have to know all that complex stuff that's going on. Um, but that they can use the language and it'll, it'll feel natural to them. So we'll see. Yeah. That's interesting that you, um, describe the, the tra- that trade-off. Do you think that it's easier if like uh, you were to make, if you were to have less features in the language that have the API be simpler, the, the under the hood could be simpler too? That Yeah, it could, right. So, I mean, for example, um, uh, if I, I could, if we, if we gave up subtyping, so you say, okay, no, like every type is a distinct type. You can't use a natural number as an integer. Um, there's a little, there's a conversion function you have to call explicitly. That would make the type system a lot simpler, um, quite a bit simpler. Um, and well, it, may, it would make type checking a lot simpler. Um, but it sort of flies in the face of standard mathematical practice. And I think students and you know math teachers would find it weird that you kind of can't just use a natural, like like a natural number is an integer. What do you mean I can't just use this? Like I've got to convert it. Uh, what, what, what con- there's no conversion happening. It's just the same value, right? Um, so, you know, but the point is like, basically those conversion functions are explicit hints to the type checking algorithm that you're switching from one type to another. And if you don't have that, well, then it's got to do a lot of hard work to figure out where to, where to insert those itself, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's, there's always trade-offs, right? Um, and there are definitely other things we could do to make it, make the type system simpler at the expense of making the language more awkward or not having as many features yeah. or something. Interesting. Um, th- this kind of reminds me of something I, I heard you talking about, um, about your diagrams library in uh, your, your Haskell mm-hmm. diagrams library. Um, that I, I was curious to get like maybe more of a story on. Um, sure. You talk. You mentioned how in a lot of libraries they people often combine the notion of like uh, a vector and a point. Um, but right. there are, but you like run into trouble if you do that, and it's better to treat them as two separate things. Right. I, I'd be curious, yeah, right. to hear what, why why is that such a a bad thing to do? It seems innocuous. <laughs> right. Um, well. Yeah, I think the the bigger principle at stake is that, you know, the way something is represented is not the same as what it is. And, you know, it's it's so tempting to represent vectors and points, uh, you know, in exactly the same. Well, they are they are represented in the same way. Right. They're like, let's say, in two dimensions. Right. It's just a pair of numbers. Um, and so because they're represented in the same way you think, oh, they're basically the same thing, um, but they're not. So, you know, an example is uh, it makes sense to take a point and add a vector to it and you get another point. Uh, it makes sense to subtract two points, quote, quote, subtract two points, and you get the vector, you know, pointing from one to the other. But it doesn't make sense to add two points, Um if I literally have some location in space and another location in space, adding them isn't really a sensible thing to do. And if, if you do that, it probably means you have a bug in your program. Um, 
And so if they're actually different types, well then, you know, ideally you can design things so that if you try to add two points, it's going to, the type system is going to yell yeah. at you. Right. Um, another example of, a, of the difference is that if you uh, translate a point, you get a different point, right? Yep. You, you move it somewhere. Um, if you translate a vector, right? Vectors don't have a location. They're just sort of a magnitude and a direction. If you imagine like a vector is kind of a little arrow sitting somewhere on the plane. Well, if you move the arrow somewhere else, it's still pointing the same direction and it's still the same length. You just kind of moved it. That doesn't change its identity as a vector. Um, that's another example of, you know, how they're different. And I, and honestly, like the, the way I came to realize this was because in an, in an early version of diagrams, um, they were the same. And I actually had an honest to goodness bug that took me a long time to figure out, to track down because of exactly this issue that I was applying a translation and it was actually like changing some vectors in a way that it shouldn't have. Um, and I, as soon as I realized what was going on, then like the a light bulb went off. Um, and I maybe, maybe before I had seen this idea of vectors and points being different. So, um, I mean the, the, the sort of, uh, fancy term for it is an affine space. So that's the sort of algebraic structure that these form. Um, and I, I, so then I kind of redesigned it so that they were actually different types. Now, I mean, in Haskell, actually, uh, a point is actually just a new type wrapper around a vector. So uh, literally, they are represented as the same thing at runtime, but uh, they're different. They're different types. So yeah, this this idea of, of being very specific about your types uh, to, as like a safeguard, um, I, I find it, you know, a very tempting idea. Um, but then in practice, sometimes I find that it's like feels more frustrating than it's worth. One, one idea I've had that's kind of related is, um, uh, and, and this might just be taking the idea to an extreme or maybe I'm, anyways, it's kind of a wacky idea. But one thought is uh, Booleans um, seem like very generic concepts and, and often you don't actually mean true or false. Uh, oftentimes you just meet like what you what you're talking about is like equal or not equal um so and so right. it, it got me wondering if if we should get rid of booleans and instead have um more specific types like equal not equal less than greater than um at, and yeah, I, yeah that's or like or even with numbers like you know integers maybe are too generic like we should um kind of like in physics how all the numbers have units and it, and it becomes like easier to know what you can divide right. and multiply, right. you know. So, but so on the one hand, it's like, well, that sounds really pretty, and, <laughs> and it could kind of give you like bowling lane bumpers uh, and, ma and make sure that you don't do anything that doesn't make any sense. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I feel like in practice that would it would be um, cumbersome. Yeah. So, um, so your idea about booleans is, is right on in a sense. Um, so there's a great um, there's a great blog post by that Bob Harper wrote um, called Boolean Blindness. Um, I highly recommend any programmer to read this article. Um, and he talks about exactly this, this problem with Booleans, that once you have a Boolean, um, it's just a single bit. And it doesn't tell you anything about where it came from or what it means. Right. And you have to you as a programmer have to remember yeah. what it's supposed to mean. And you sort of have to kind of recover that information. Um, and so 
excuse me. Um, it's this idea that um, typically, so I, I don't think it would work to sort of list out in advance all the different things you could want instead of a Boolean, because it's going to be specific yeah. to each situation, right? Um, let me see if I can give a specific example. So, um, um, like if you, uh, you know, if you want to know, I don't know, this isn't a great example. It's, it's the first thing I could think of. If you want to know if a list is empty, right, you shouldn't just return a Boolean. Um, instead, you want to return, essentially, you want to return a, a, a proof, uh, like a, a constructive proof of whether it's empty or not. So maybe you would make a data type. So I'm thinking in terms of like algebraic data types. If you, you make a data type, it has one constructor called empty and another called not empty that has, you know, a, that has to contain a value. And so if the list is empty, you return empty. And if it's not empty, you return not empty and the first value in the list. Sure. Um, and that way, you know, for example, you know, and it, and it kind of depends on what you were going to use that uh, Boolean for. So if you, if you had some code that said, oh, I'm going to check if the list is empty. And then if it's not empty, I'm going to project out the head of the list and do something with it. Right. But if you look at that code, you're like, well, how do I know that uh, projecting out the head of the list is safe? Well, it's because I just called this function that told me and it gave me false. And so I know it's not empty. So I know it has to have a first thing, but you have to do all that reasoning yeah. in your head. Right. Um, and if it instead returned this data type that said either it's empty or it's not empty and here's a proof, here's the first element of the list. Well, now you just pattern match on that and you've got your element and you, it's, it's manifestly, that code is manifestly safe, right? You can look at that code and say, this will never crash. And I don't have to do any kind of sophisticated reasoning to figure out why. It sounds, um, yeah. so, and this is very, it's well, very, it sounds yeah, like ahead. it's just pattern matching. It sounds, uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately it's not actually that complicated. Um, it's just this idea of <clears throat> often if you have a function that's returning a Boolean, you should really think about maybe you want something more informative than a, than a Boolean, right? What information would you actually want to kind of prove that the answer is true or false? And you should return that information instead. Hmm. Interesting. But it's, you know, it's kind of ad hoc, right? It's, you can't design up front a list of replacements for Boolean in each specific situation. You have to decide what, you know, what information am I using to decide whether it should be true or false? Well, I should just return, I should make a data type well, for so that information. I got, like we could take an example, like the quality operator in Haskell return mm -hmm. true or false. Yeah. So like, w like, I guess, right. do you think it would make sense to redesign it to return uh, like greater than or less than or equal or how, yeah, how would you redesign that function? Oh, uh, right. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> that's a, that's a tricky example. I mean, I guess, you you can really only do something better with that in a like a dependently typed language where you can actually return a proof literally that two things are equal, um, <coughs> which um, you can kind of do in Haskell if you if you you play some tricks, but um, like using GADTs and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, th th I guess that's that's really it. I mean. So it's not so much you're, you're returning an algebraic data type, you're returning a proof, right? Uh, a Boolean 
really is just is just asking is this is something true or not and so instead of just returning a boolean that says yes or no you say yes it is true and here is a proof or no it isn't true and here is a proof um because that's really the information that you want is like why is it true yes okay so in the in the case of like equality you you would just say like they're not equal because five is bigger than three is that kind of yeah um you well in the case of equality it, it depends on what you want to use it for often in the case of checking for equality you you really only care about the case mm -hmm. when they are equal if they're not equal you're just not going to do anything and so you don't really need any information other than the fact that they're not equal um but if they are equal then now you you've learned something you've learned that these two things are the same and maybe something else you're going to do later is going to depend on that and so you'd really actually like a proof that they're the same that you can then use later so that you know um, that what you're doing is is safe. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't have a good example of that off the top of my head, but and this is you know this is not just uh, theoretical. I mean, if you you'll you'll find libraries with functions of exactly this type in in Haskell and um, you know in in other other functional languages like dependently typed languages. Um, <clears throat> so, so people really do this. I think maybe part of the point is that you can really only do this in a language that has a sufficiently expressive type system that you can encode non-trivial proofs about, um, you know, values in your program. And, you know, so at a minimum, like you want some kind of algebraic data types. Um, it'd be really, really unwieldy to do this in Java, mm -hmm. for example. Um, it doesn't even have some types. So, but uh, you don't necessarily need dependent types. Um, you can encode a lot of proofs that are just some kind of algebraic data type, but without mm -hmm. dependency. But, but yeah. Cool. Um, it's kind of like on the other side of things. Uh, there's a the, the creator of the closure language, Rich Hickey, uh, talks about, mm -hmm. uh, he kind of like represents in my mind, the other side of the argument, he, he argues that you should kind of mm -hmm. not use strong typing. Um, his argument is that uh, we programmers love abstractions, but it's like fun to write them, but you often get them wrong and, and they're, they're hard to explain to other people and you need to change them. So he, he argues for like keep, uh, keeping just very simple values, just numbers, booleans, lists. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear... Because I, I, I know you're someone who's so excited about like abstractions, multiple levels of abstractions. So how do you reconcile the idea that abstractions are like difficult and um, you get them wrong and, and they're hard to communicate? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason abstractions are difficult and you get them wrong is because programming <laughs> is hard. Um, like it's not it's not because abstractions are bad and they make they they're hard to use. Um, it's that they're sort of if you're if you're only using you know booleans and ints and strings, you can kind of pretend that everything is fine, um, because well everything type checks because well this just expects an int and this expects a string, <clears throat> um, but but they aren't fine right your your program is full of bugs and so when you start using you start trying to build abstractions you run into the fact that a you're, there's more bugs that are showing up actually as type errors for example which can feel frustrating, but of course you're finding bugs. Um, and B, you run into the fact that you don't understand the domain well enough to 
to be able to build the right abstraction. And, uh, you know, that's, that can be sort of a humbling experience. Um, but again, that's not really the fault of the abstraction. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but by, by sort of pushing onward and, 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 you know, iterating and trying to design good abstractions and, and sort of, um, you know, good types to model your domain, um, a good API that models the kinds of operations you want to be able to do that, that everything is sort of consistent and elegant. Um, that takes a lot of hard work, but when you do that, that, that work is work to understand your problem domain. Um, and you're going to have to do that work sooner or later, um, whether you do it up front or whether you do it, you know, down the road when you have, you know, tons of bugs and you can't understand what's going on. Um, and, or, or you, you can't maintain it because, um, you know, you, you need, something needs to change and you, just the way you've designed it just doesn't support that, um, because you didn't think through the domain well enough. Well, so um, I think, you know, yeah. I don't, so, I was going to say that this, ahead. um, to me, uh, feels kind of like the, like it, it's the opposite of what you argue in the Monad tutorial fallacy or not the opposite of what you argue, but, um, it's like for humans, it's, it's very easy to go from like simple things to more abstract things. But sometimes in Haskell or like statically typed language, it feels like you need to have a really good abstract understanding of the domain before you can get started. Uh, yeah. Is it that? Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I guess it's right. It's not to say that, um, so I, I would never argue that, you know, you're not really a, a programmer unless you can use all these crazy mm -hmm. abstractions, right? Um, not at all. Um, but I would say, you know, to argue that we shouldn't use these things, um, you know, yeah, it, it does. It takes a lot of experience to be able to get to the point where you can use them well, but um, but that's it's time well spent and it's it's effort well spent um, because when you get to that point, you're 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 able to work at such a, a higher level um, that you know it, it really pays off in terms of your productivity and the kinds of problems you can solve. So when you're um, like building a new application in Haskell mm -hmm. and. Like don't you you don't entirely understand the problem domain right. at least in my um, is there a way to start concrete and then build up uh, like how you would in a kind of dynamic language where you kind of just messily pass yeah. around strings and ends and not check you know to make sure everything is hunky dory yeah and then oh, you know, sure. over time sure you can um, you know and I, I I usually fall somewhere in the middle where I kind of you know just because of my experience there's certain things that I know. Oh, I, I kind of I know what pattern this is going to fall into. I know how I want to, you know, build an abstraction for this instead of just passing around strings or whatever. But, um, but you know, you also you just try things out and you kind of write some code and and maybe you'd end up maybe you end up. I mean, I've had the experience of writing a bunch of code and then suddenly realizing, oh, I know the right way to do this, and I just throw it away and start over. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, the other thing about having a, a a strong static type system is that it makes it really a joy to refactor. Um, I've had the experience of, you know, spending a day refactoring some Haskell code. And then as soon as I get it to compile, it works. Um, and mm -hmm. that doesn't happen all the time, but um, 
it is really, you know, fun saying, all right, I need to, I need, I realize now this shouldn't be a string. This should be something else, or I should, I should organize this in a different way. So I just change it. And then I just, you know, I just start going down the list of, of type errors and I fix each one. And when I'm done, you know, I'm done refactoring. Um, so it actually, I think, I think that kind of exploratory programming where you don't quite understand the domain and you're just trying things out um, with some simple abstractions and then sort of, you know, building it up as you go. I think that works even better in a language with, um, well, not so much about what abstractions a language has, but just about having a strong static type system um, because it, it, it sort of gives you that safety net. Um, if I had a giant, <clears throat> you know, a giant uh, Perl program and I wanted to refactor it, I mean, I would, that would be, that would be awful, right? I, I wouldn't, I would just <laughs> do something else because if I started ref making some giant refactor, I'm not at all confident that I'm going to be able to get everything right, make all the changes correctly that, that I need to. Um, so, yeah. 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 I, I have a, a big JavaScript program mm. that, that I've been, been, been accreting over the last few years right. and it's, it's a bit of a mess now and I, I don't really even want to look at it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's like, I don't want to touch it because as soon as I make some changes, yeah. it's all going to fall over and I just can't, I'm not going to be able to, to fix it. Right. Yeah, it definitely works now. So if I exactly just, right, yeah. know, don't sneeze, yeah, it'll, it'll fall over. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I had a few questions, a few more questions. Um, let's see. One one series of questions I had, um, but I'm I'm not sure how they're going to go. But um, <laughs> well, just let's try them. So. Um, in, are you familiar at all with the Re JavaScript React library? Uh, I am not. Is that is that something with like functional reactive programming stuff or? Yes, yeah. yes. That, that's why I'm bringing. Yeah, it. I've heard of it, but I don't. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. Well, so so, anyways, um, I'll kind of come at this question in a different way. Okay. I so when you think about abstraction, a lot of time you think about hiding details, right? Um, and what's great about hiding details um, is reuse and composability you can like build a thing yeah and then and then use it in a bunch of different places right um without having you know without having like rehook it up somewhere right else. right yep um but then uh the the stinky thing about having like hidden details is that you can't um get at them i guess the the, the thing that's annoying is like um hidden mutable state uh, like lo local mutable state. If you have some component oh, okay. that has some like local mutable state, um, okay. that that's like leads to leads you down this like rabbit hole that you don't like. Yeah, well, why do you need mutable um, state? Why do you need local <laughs> mutable state? I'm joking. Go ahead. Well, the idea is um, like let's say you have uh, an input box yeah. on your like website, huh? and like you want the person to be able to like type whatever they want, and then when they're done, they hit submit, and um, right. and you you can build it so that like the whole application knows about every single key press you type into that, that, um, input box. Right. Um, but, but now it's like the input box is kind of tied into the page and it's hard to like abstract, yeah. extract the input box and put it like in a different. Page. Right. Right. Um, and so like, I, I one way people solve it is with like, you know, cursors, you like create an input box and it has its, its state and 
Um, anyways, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of get, getting lost in my own question, but, uh, and, and maybe you're not, uh, maybe it's, it's not going to make sense because uh, I'm coming, coming from like a React perspective. Right. Um, in, in Haskell, this isn't a problem. Everyone just uses like uh, state is kind of represented uh, well, global. Like there's no, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think it can still be a problem. And I've, I've, so I've only done a little bit of functional reactive programming. Um, and uh, I mean, so I, I, I was using a reflex in Haskell. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, even, even, I mean, you, you do end up using mutable state there as well. Um, you know, often like the way to do it is you, you set up this, like an IO ref, which is like a, a mutable reference cell um, to store something. And then there's various things that interact with it. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, as a, as a species, I, I think we just still haven't figured out how to do uh, UI programming. Uh, <laughs> I just, uh, and I think, you know, I think functional reactive programming has a lot of great ideas. Um, and I think it's headed very much in the right direction, but I still think we're just, we're not there. And um, I don't know, just, I, I don't, I don't know. I can't put my finger on exactly what makes it so difficult. Um, but, um, but just, you know, just as an example, um, I was, I was working with a student. We were making this, this, you know, user interface using, um, an FRP library. And, you know, it turns out that like, it's very easy to get into situations where you, you write things that either like depend on things in the future in a weird way that like just makes your whole program hang or just things aren't computing exactly what you think they should be. And then it, it was very, very difficult to debug because, um, there's just kind of, it's hard to figure out how to, to instrument it, to get the information you want out of it. Um, so it was definitely not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of smooth programming experience that, um, that you, that you would like. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't have a lot of answers, um, but it does seem to be a very difficult, very difficult area. Yeah. Would you recommend, um, like to learn about FRP kind of stuff, like going back and reading like Colonel Elliott's papers um, or playing more just like playing around with a library like Reflex. Yeah, I think I, I would, I would start by just playing around with a library like Reflex. Um, um, you know, I think once you've maybe seen one or two libraries, it's, it's interesting to go back and read some of the, um, some of the foundational work in the field. But um, and I, I've read some of those papers Um but I don't know. It's it's still there's so many different approaches to it and so many nuances. Um, it can be kind of overwhelming trying to read some of the original papers on it um, because they don't quite match up with you know current libraries in certain ways, um, mm-hmm. and they don't agree with each other in other ways. And so, um, but yeah, I think it's <clears throat> um, there's some really cool ideas there um, just in general, and I think I definitely think. Uh, you know, you'll be a better programmer in general if you, if you learn a little bit about it, even if you never use it. It's one of those things that it's just got some really different ideas, um, you know, especially just thinking about uh, thinking about events 
you know, not as like a thing that can happen that triggers some code, but it's like sort of the, this one thing that represents the entire history and future of, you know, of, of something that can happen or something that's changing. And you get to sort of just say how something else is computed from it as it varies over time, but you're not explicitly talking about, you know, some sequence of events that like when this fires, then call this callback and then do this other thing. You're saying how this thing is related to this other thing. Um, that's a really powerful way of, of, you know, describing things changing over time. Um, so yeah, I think, I think learning about it is, is, uh, is great. Cool. Um, on the, on the topic of like, learning complicated things, <laughs> right. um, I, I personally have found reading research papers uh, in computer science very mm-hmm. difficult. Um, and I imagine as like a computer science professor, it's something you do a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the question is kind of two parts. The first question is, given it's such an investment to read papers, do you have right. a, a way of figuring out if a paper is worth reading? Right. Um, and then, and sometimes for me, it's like, you like think of papers interesting and you like get like halfway through and then you reference in some other work that you like, Oh, I probably should read that first. And now you're, now you're like four papers in. Yeah. You're like, Oh, like I, I didn't, I don't know if I want to read four papers. Right. So that's the first, the first problem. And then the second problem is that like, once you've decided, okay, I, need, I really need to read this paper. Um, do you like sit down and read it in like an hour? Do you print it out? What, what What's your process? Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's good, good questions. Um, so, uh, reading papers is difficult it doesn't really get easier uh and uh there's just different things that are difficult i guess um so let me think how would i how would i talk about sort of how i approach this um you know in terms of deciding whether you want to read a paper or not i mean there's really no magic formula there um, you know, read the abstract, skim skim some part of it, um, you know, read the introduction and the conclusion. I don't know, you know, just try to get some sense of um, whether it's likely to contain some ideas that are going to be interesting or relevant to you. Um, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a professional academic, there can certainly be situations where you're like, you know, this paper... Uh, is not going to be very, I'm not going to enjoy reading this, but I think it's going to contain some ideas that might be important. Um, so I have to read it. Um, I think as a, as a professional programmer, that's, you know, that's going to be much rarer. Um, I think if you start reading a paper and you're like, I'm not enjoying this, then stop. It's probably not worth it. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's different reasons for not enjoying something. And so I guess that gets into, you know, how do you actually approach reading a paper? Um, I think the biggest thing that I, that I learned, like in grad school um, and just, in, you know, in reading papers is that um, reading a paper is a very different activity than reading a book, even a, even a technical book. Um, because books, um, well, certainly like fiction, I mean, you just kind of, you just read it and you just absorb the story as you go. But even technical books, you know, they have a lot of space to uh, really expand on ideas, use a lot of examples. Um, you can kind of just read, just sit down and kind of read through it and get a lot out of it. Um, that tends to not be the case with papers, especially, 
conference papers that sort of have a, a strict page limit um, and are trying to fit, you know, a certain amount of ideas into um, the space. And so, um, <clears throat> you have to understand that, you know, reading a paper and getting stuff out of it, um, you, so the, I think the worst thing you can do is to just pick up a paper and just kind of try, start reading through it. Um, you, you have to engage with it um, in some active way. And so often what I do, um, I will like, well, I, I typically will print it out um, because I just prefer reading on physical paper over reading on a screen. Um, I'll read blog posts and stuff on a screen. But again, that's that's more like a book where you can just read it just from start to finish and get something out of it. Um, although that's not true for all blog posts, especially people doing stuff with, with Haskell. But, um, uh, but well, those I'll print out, right? I mean, so I, it's something that I want to engage with more actively. I'll, I'll print it out. Um, I'll often print it out, you know, just single-sided so that I can, as I'm flipping through it, I can use the other side, like the, the blank side on the opposite uh, page just for like scribbling notes and stuff or I'll scribble notes in the margin and I'll just, you know, I just, I force myself to really make sure that I really understand, um, you know, what, what the paper is talking about. So if there's some, you know, reasoning that I don't quite understand, I've forced myself to work through it. Um, if often, uh, what I'll do is, especially if the paper like has some code, I'll sort of read the description and see if I can write the code myself without looking at it. Um, and usually I can't, and then I look at it and then I'm like, Oh, now I see how that works. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, the important thing is to really fight, uh, you know, there's a psychological phenomenon where you, um, the feeling of understanding something is, is sort of independent of how well you really understand it. So you can read something and you're like, I feel like that made sense but you haven't really absorbed it in a way that, that you could use it or, you know, recognize it. Um, and so you really have to be very intentional about forcing yourself to engage actively with the, with the content, um, you know, like type up some code, like implementing some of the ideas or work out, you know, work out the details of some formula or equation or something, um, you know, and, and it might, it might be that you spend, you know, uh, half an hour on one page, but that's okay. Um, because you've probably gotten way more out of that half an hour than if you had just spent that half an hour reading the entire paper. And even if you stop there, even if you only read the first page and you actively engage with it, and then you just get too lost and you're like, I'm going to stop. You've still gotten something valuable out of that paper. So I think that's the other thing to say is that you don't have to read every paper from beginning to end, right? You can get good things out of it by just reading as far as you can until you get to a point where you're like, either this is boring or I can't, I'm like, I'm missing too much background. I can't follow this anymore. Um, or I'm just too tired right now. I need to come back to this later and then just stop, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I, the other thing you said about, you know, you, you follow, you're like, Oh, I need to go read this paper first. I need to read this paper first. I don't really know how to solve that problem. Um, you, you have that problem too. I have that problem too. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> Um, and I guess it kind of, you know, it's always hard to, to kind of get into a new field because there's just so much to absorb and it, and it feels like everything depends on everything else. And you can't, there's nowhere to, you can't get started. It's like infinite recursion. 
where you're like, I need to understand this first. I need to understand this first. And, um, you know, part of it, I think, is just accepting the fact that it's going to feel like that and that it's okay if you don't understand everything and kind of doing the best you can. Um, you know, don't feel like, oh, I have to get down to the bottom of the stack before I can start popping, you know, uh, I mixed up that metaphor. But anyway, I, you know, I have to, I have to, uh, you know, get to sort of the most foundational paper that I can understand in and of itself before I can get, get back to, you know, building back up. Um, that's just, that's never going to happen. You're just going to get lost in infinite recursion of papers and, and never learn what it is you wanted to learn. So, you know, I think, I think a much better idea is to do something like, um, kind of like iterative deepening where you look at a paper, you read it or you read part of it. If there's stuff you don't understand, just kind of write down some questions or write down some terms that you didn't understand, write down, you know, make a list of here's, you know, papers in the bibliography that it seemed like when they were cited in the text, it seemed like, oh, that might be something I wanted to read about. So I looked it up and I wrote that down. So you kind of have a list and then you kind of pick something from the list that, that seems most interesting or relevant to you and look at that. Right. But you don't, you don't have to like put this paper on hold and go read something else first. Um, you can still get something out of it. And then maybe you can come back to that paper later once you've read some other stuff. Uh, there's papers that I've come back to three or four times because the first few times I, I didn't I didn't fully understand them. Um, and I mean, there's papers that I still don't fully understand. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, interacting with, you know, other people's thoughts that they've tried to record in some way on paper um, which is, which, and their thoughts themselves are embedded in a complex social network of people, you know, communicating and developing ideas together. I mean, it's just a messy, complicated undertaking and there's no way around that. Um, hmm. and so I mean, maybe humility, I would say is, is the most important attribute just saying, I'm not going to be able to understand all this and that's okay. And I can still get something out of it if I just, you know, uh, engage actively with it and, and get what I can. Um, and after a while of doing that, you'll find that suddenly you're like, wait, suddenly I, I now, if you look back and you're like, wow, I understand a lot more now, but it's, it's such a gradual process. You can't really see it happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm thinking now, I guess if the, a good strategy is humility. I'm wondering if there's like certain, like benchmarks that are like shockingly low that might help, you know, me feel better. For example, uh, I think like people say, I've heard like it said somewhere that like uh, you can only spend like four hours doing really dedicated, hard thinking work, uh, something like that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'd be curious to get a sense of like, for, for, um, is it, do you, how many hours of reading research papers is it, is it like oh, yeah. possible to do a day or? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Let me, that, that's a really good question. Um, actually, well, I can well, tell you how exactly you, how much time I spend reading research papers per week. I've, oh, wow. I forget what it is right now. What is it? What it's set to? Um, like I use this site called B minor. Let's use set quantifiable goals. And so I have a goal for reading, research papers. So right now during the semester, it's set to one hour per week, um, which is, 
both not a lot and also a lot. I mean, it's, you know, um, 10 minutes a day. Um, but, you know, I try to make that really focused time where I'm, I'm really trying to actively wrestle with, you know, some paper. And I've got a big stack of, you know, whenever I see something interesting, I just print it out and I have a big folder full of these things. Um, you know, but I don't think I've ever done more than like three hours per week. Um, for me, that would be a lot. And, and at one sitting, I mean, occasionally I'll get so in, absorbed in a paper, um, especially if I'm like, you know, I'm trying to like code it, code up the ideas in the paper you know, while I'm reading it or something like that. You know, I could maybe spend an hour and a half on it, but that's, that's like, you know, that's a lot. Um, typically like 35 minutes or 45 minutes, 30 or 45 minutes is like, is my max. Um, you know, and that's because of the way that I'm, that I'm, I'm reading it. I'm not just sitting there kind of just reading. I'm really actively wrestling with it. Um, and I can only do so much of that before my eyes just start to glaze over and I'll catch myself like where I, I, I get into this mode of, I just start reading and I'm not really comprehending everything that I'm reading, but my eyes are just going over the words and, I really have to be intentional about catching myself doing that and stopping and be like, this is not productive either. Either I need to get back to actively wrestling with it or just decide that's not happening right now. And I should do something else. Mm. Yeah. It, interesting. Yeah. That, that definitely, I guess that that's kind of what I was looking for. It definitely does make me feel better. About yeah. No, professional academics spend five hours a day reading other. No, like, yeah, that doesn't. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and, and the, the, the converse of it is you'd be surprised how much you can learn in 45 minutes of really actively engaging with a paper, um, you know, even if you only look at the first page. Um, so, you know, it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's inspirational. <laughs> Good. Okay, cool. Okay, so he, here's... Um... Something that I, different question. Uh, here's something that I've overheard. Um, so there are people, um, like the people who listen to, the, to like this podcast are like people who are semi-academic, but uh -huh. more like the startup-y crowd. Sure. Uh, okay. People who are, but like people who are trying to make programming languages. Right. And something that people, people like will complain that like academics in programming language, uh, like programming language academics are like, you know, overly focused about like obs making obscure parts of Haskell better. Um, right. Um, so I'd be curious to hear how you'd respond to, to that criticism. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I, I feel like it's kind of an unfair criticism, but, um, yeah, and okay. I could talk about it, why, uh, why I think so, right. but, but I feel like uh, just, you know, to get to hear like why you think it's a, like a worthwhile pursuit to like explore you know, right. more type in Haskell. Like why, why is that interesting? Yeah. I, like, I mean, you know, I think it's the age old thing about like uh, pure research versus, you know, like more applied research, um, you know, working on obscure parts of the Haskell type system. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's probably not going to have much impact on practice, you know, right now. Um, but, you know, the stuff that is now getting, uh, picked up in industry. I mean, that was the stuff that was weird, obscure stuff 20 years ago. So, um, 
you know, I mean, and I guess to be fair, I'll say that, um, you know, to some extent, maybe the criticism is justified that, I mean, there certainly are probably examples of people um, doing stuff, you know, looking at things that in the end is not really that, it's not going to make that much of a difference or it's not that interesting, um, you know, just, just because they need something to do. And I'm certainly not pointing any fingers at all, <laughs> but I mean, that's always going to be true, right? There's always, there's always going to be some of that going on in any field. Um, so, well, and, and, you know, but partly also it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Uh, you know, in hindsight, you can look at it and say, well, that idea didn't go anywhere, but um, you know, you can't really tell what idea is going to go somewhere and what idea is not. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good, good, good reminder that, uh, we, you know, um, just like core, yeah, core research, uh, mm-hmm. is that, that's, that's like the, the trade-off it's like, uh, right. it's not immediately applicable, but right. Um, yep. Um, cool. Well, anyways, uh, thanks so much for, for spending the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, sure. You're welcome. This was fun. Cool. Um, well, I'll talk to you. Yeah. Maybe next year. All right. Sounds good. As promised, uh, Here is the bonus question that I asked Brent uh, after the interview over email. I asked, in the interview, you mentioned that the reason programming with a strong type system is difficult is because programming is difficult. And this is a very different sentiment from the, quote, everyone can code because it's easy, end quote, movement. You implied that dynamic languages hide away the difficulty inherent to programming in the short term, while static program static languages force you to grapple with it up front which is why they seem more difficult but in actuality they're just um, exposing the inherent difficulty to programming that dynamic languages hide i wanted to dig into this point more because my thoughts often go in the opposite direction on the whole programming is harder than it needs to be due to all sorts of incidental complexity would you argue that the complexity a programmer encounters while programming in haskell is mostly essential complexity And his response is, let me first say that incidental complexity is real, it is a big problem, and we should definitely be all we can do to reduce it, for all programmers, but especially for beginners. In fact, that's a big part of why I'm developing my own language for teaching discrete math and functional programming, because an existing existing general purpose FP language would have very high incidental complexity for beginning students in such a course. However, I think the attitude you cite quote, everyone can code because it's easy, quote, misses the distinction because between incidental and essential complexity, and can even be incredibly damaging. Imagine you were just learning to program and you've been told it's easy, but in fact, you don't find it easy. What will you conclude? Since the subject is easy, the problem must be you. You are too stupid, or you are, quote, not a computer person, or whatever. Instead, we should be telling people, quote, programming is hard, but one, it is also fun and worthwhile, Two, you can do it if you work hard at it, at it. And three, I will help you. Note, many of the best educational materials out there for teaching kids coding and computing concepts do exactly this. They provide a fun environment, number two, with, scaffold, with appropriate scaffolding and hints, number three, which invite the kids into solving challenging puzzles, number one. As to whether the complexity while coding in Haskell is more essential than in incidental, I think this is often true. For example, suppose you want to add one to every element of a list. In Haskell, you don't have to think much further than this, map plus one list. In Java, you have to write a loop 
with a brand new variable to control it. You have to worry about getting the lower and upper bounds right. You have to worry about whether the reference to your list is actually aliased by some other list reference you don't want to change, etc., etc. Of course, many languages that aren't, quote, purely functional can do this example in a nice way too. I think my argument here is mostly about languages with good facilities for abstraction versus without, more than about functional versus non-functional. But static versus dynamic is part of the story too. I like the way you put it, quote, an incidental type error is one that doesn't prevent any bugs. A program in a static language with a type error probably wouldn't work in a dynamic language either. So the type error forces you to confront the fact that you have a fundamental misunderstanding about your code, the problem domain, etc. My contention would be that a sufficiently expressive static type system, that within a sufficiently expressive static type system, type errors are much more often an expression of essential complexity, i.e. you misunderstand something or made a legitimate mistake, than incidental, i.e. what you are trying to do would work fine, but the type system doesn't let you express it. Of course, I have no way to back this up, and people learning a statically typed language for the first time may still feel like there is more incidental than essential complexity. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in a few weeks.